So this morning, my sermon topic is the five foolish virgins. And the text is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Please turn there with me in your Bibles, if you have not already, to Matthew 25, the first 13 verses, 1 through 13. And we're going to hear the parable of the ten virgins. This is what Matthew writes. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So what's this all about? Well, it's important, of course, but it's about the church specifically. It's, to, it's written for us. And, but how are we to, to understand it? Well, a little introduction to how Matthew is writing, I think, may be helpful as we start. The Gospel of Matthew is arranged purposely around seven mountains. Many of the major events in our Lord Jesus' ministry took place on, on mountaintops. These were what Matthew was inspired to write about and, and document. So why is this significant? Why am I mentioning this you know, right off the bat this morning? The significance lies in Matthew's intended audience, his immediate audience. Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews of his day. When we look at at the four Gospels, we can see to a certain extent whom the intended audience, the target audience that the Gospel writer was writing to probably is or was based on how they wrote and what they wrote. So writing to the Jews of his day, these of course are people who had been given scriptures by God, what we know as, of course, the Old Testament which was 
the Lord God's revelation of himself and his covenants with mankind and especially with his people. Now Matthew was, I think, addressing a particular question. He was answering the question of the Jews of his day. Is this one, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah promised to us by Yahweh? And Matthew's answer is yes, and much more, for he is Yahweh. So mountaintops have a special place in Hebrew scripture, and so also in Matthew, because of who he is writing to. It's on the mountaintops where the Lord God often speaks and acts on behalf of his people. So Matthew has these seven mountains in his gospel. And seven, we know, symbolizes something in the Bible. It's a number of perfection, completeness, and thoroughness. So thus, the Lord's ministry on earth, his preaching, his teaching, his, his driving out of demons, his healings, were complete and thorough. And Matthew is intentionally, by using these mountaintops, connecting the words and actions of Jesus with the words and actions of the Lord God. And using this literary framework, Matthew is saying that Jesus of Nazareth is God, come to earth in flesh as a man. So Matthew is presenting a very high Christology written very early in the time of the church. Very quickly, we're at point number one that I want to make this morning. And that is, do not miss the importance of timing in Christ's teachings and commands. Do not miss the importance of timing in Christ's teachings and commands. Let me explain. This parable that I read, that we have in the, in the 25th chapter of Matthew, is, takes place on the sixth mountaintop of Matthew's gospel, where Jesus is giving his final teaching before his crucifixion. This, this takes place on the Mount of Olives. Also, we know it theologically as the Olivet Discourse. And it's not a public discourse. It's not a public teaching to the crowd. Rather, Jesus at this time is speaking privately to his disciples, and his topic is the last things, what we might call eschatology, the end of the age and what is to come after this. So in Matthew's timeline, events are speeding up now. Speeding up to the crashing crescendo of the inevitable crucifixion and the surprising and unexpected resurrection. Just a few chapters ago in his gospel, Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then from that point, there was a series of confrontations between the Lord Jesus and the religious authorities primarily at the temple complex. You read, the, you read from chapter 21 in the triumphal entry to the Olivet Discourse, and it's just confrontation after confrontation. And, and when you, if you read those, that section, or when you do read it, think of what it would have been like to be one of Jesus' followers, and there's this constant harassment by the authorities. There's this constant attempt to trap the Lord. There's a constant 
back and forth between them on points of God's revelation. Jesus leaves the temple for the very last time before his arrest. We might think of Isaiah when he, 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 he foretells that the glory of the Lord departs the temple. And I think this is what we are seeing. The Lord is departing the temple. And he foretells its coming destruction. Then he goes to the Mount of Olives. This is outside the gate of the city, to the east of Jerusalem. And they're looking down upon the temple complex, which is on the east side, inside the walls. They look down on it, and he begins to teach them. In response to a question they ask him, in in 24.3, we read their question to the Lord, and they ask him, tell us, when will these things be? They're talking about the destruction of the temple that the Lord spoke of. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, to the first century Jewish mind, the destruction of the temple meant the end of the age. That if the temple was gone, then certainly time was over and this age had come to an end. A world without the temple was unthinkable to them. And concerning his return, he tells them, no one knows the day and hour. Then he uses three parables to inform them of what is necessary for his followers in waiting for his return. And our main text this morning is one of these parables, the parable of the ten virgins. Now in this parable, there's three characters that we should be aware of. And and you maybe already have spotted this, you already know it, but I must point it out for those that that aren't familiar. Uh, The first two characters are represented in the ten virgins. The ten virgins are divided absolutely in half. And allegorically, they represent the, the, the visible church. They do not literally represent unmarried women. So that, that probably doesn't need to be said, but we're dealing with a parable. So, so we, we are dealing with allegories. Then these ten, like I said, are divided into two groups of five each. Five foolish virgins, which will, is one character, and then five wise virgins, virgins which is uh, the second character. Now, I'm dividing this sermon into two parts. And this morning, I'm addressing the five foolish virgins. And this evening, I am going to continue and address the five wise virgins. And there's a third character, as I mentioned, and that's the bridegroom who allegorically represents the Lord God. And this story, this parable, follows the typical Jewish marriage customs of the first century, which are are different from from ours. Um, So the lamps that the virgins have are, um, we probably should better think of them as torches. The, The Greek word used here could mean lamp or torch, could mean either But really, um, they're talking about a torch, Um, uh, portable torches for outdoor use, Um, a stick with bundles of cloth wrapped on the end that would be ignited. It's not, um, when we read this, um, it's not that, that, it's not a clay or metal 
lamp like we, we think of like in the Aladdin's lamp, you know, with the little spout with the flame coming out. That's, that's not it. It's, it's, it's a, a large um, uh, torch. And, and, this, and that's important. It's, it's not just uh, trivia. There's a, there, you'll see in a bit w why that's important, that we, un that we understand that. So, so it makes sense. Otherwise, it's like, well, this is, this is stupid. What, what you mean you, you have a you, Aladdin's lamp with no oil in it? Of course, you know, that's not going to work. Um, so back to the Jewish marriage customs. What, what they would do, the groom would leave his parents' home with a bunch of his friends, there'd be a contingent of them, and they'd go to the home of his bride. And at his bride's home, the, the nuptial ceremony, the marriage ceremony itself would, would take place. And, and once they were, they were married, the entire wedding party formed a processional, and they went back to the home of the bridegroom for the wedding banquet. And this wedding feast was often held at night. It was, that was the usual practice. So, of course, the, the lamps, the torches, were, were used during this nighttime procession, right? And as, as the Lord is telling this parable to his disciples, this small band, he right away, in, verse, in our verse 1, chapter 25, he tells us, what the parable is about. The parable is about the kingdom of God. The disciples, knowing the subject matter, would have realized that the, the virgins in the story were those expected to be in the kingdom of heaven. Those who think they're going to be there, those who are maybe thought by others that will be in the kingdom of heaven. What we call the visible church. And the bridegroom, they would have understood, was God coming for his people. Because the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, depicted God as the husband of his people. So these ten virgins then are those who spiritually are either prepared or unprepared for the coming of the Lord God, for that great day for the day of judgment. Now these are the main points of the parable. Like the bridegroom, Christ may delay his coming longer than people expect. And like the wise virgins, the faithful people of God must be prepared for such a delay. This means, practically speaking, that discipleship may be harder than expected, especially to those who are and remain for much longer than they should immature in their faith. Like the foolish virgins, those who are not prepared will discover a point beyond which there is, there is no return. The end, even though it is delayed, will come suddenly. There will be at that point in time, it'll be too late to undo the damage of neglect that we will see with the foolish virgins. So jumping ahead to how, how the Lord Jesus wraps up this parable, it's very important what he says in the closing in verse 13. He says, watch therefore, for you know not neither the day nor the hour. 
So here, Jesus is giving a concluding command that emphasizes the necessary response. I'm skipping to that because it's important that we see this command, that he is giving a command in this. It's not just a, a, a quaint story. It's, there, there's, a, there's an absolute pressing, important point to this and a command that's in it, and that's to keep watch. He's emphasizing the necessary response of true disciples to the warning that he's given in the parable. And this parable is not just for the end times. It's not just for, you know, right before the judgment day, because as the Lord says, no one knows when this is, it, this is right? Obviously, it did not happen in the time of the disciples, the, the, these apostles who were gathered around him, did it? No, but he gave them this, and he's giving it to us. And we must not think this doesn't apply because I don't think the Lord's coming back. I don't know when he's coming back. But when, when we finish with this parable, we'll understand what we are to do regardless of when he returns. When Jesus says to keep watch, he does not mean necessarily to stay awake. Because in verse, the second half of, of, of verse 5, you look at it that he, he, it says that all, all ten of the virgins, the wise and the foolish, became drowsy and slept. The, even the wise got tired and closed their eyes and went to sleep. Jesus means keep watch in the sense of be prepared, be ready. How can I say this? How do, how do I know that to be true? Well, uh, we look at, at what Jesus said preceding this. We see the same idea in the, in the parable, before the, the parable of the ten virgins, which also deals with Christ's return. And in chapter 24, verses 42 and 43 of that parable, he says, therefore, stay awake. That's the same Greek verb that we saw in Jesus' command in 25.13, watch, stay awake, watch. Same Greek verb. Therefore, stay awake. Watch, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. See how Jesus is emphasizing this unknowing, right? But know this, but there's something you can know. Don't know when he's coming back, but you can know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. Same Greek verb as watch in 25.13. He would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Okay, so I matched up these Greek verbs. Does that help us any? Well, it, it does because in, in verse 44 of chapter 24, Jesus explains exactly what he means when he commands us to watch or stay awake. 24.44, he says, Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready. That's what wakefulness is in these parables. And again, you know, the Lord keeps saying, He's, I'm, the Son of Man is coming back at an hour you do not expect. So note, note well here what he's saying. It will not be when people say it is. People say, oh, 
Well, what's good? Did you read what's going on? Did you read what happened? Did you hear what happened? The Lord's got to be returning anytime. Well, you know what? Just the fact that we're all going around saying that might be a sign that this isn't the time. I'm not saying that that is something how we judge the Lord's return. What I'm saying is we do not listen to our inner fears. We do not listen to the fears of other people. We have a duty. We must be prepared. Do not become frightened by what our culture is saying, what our news is saying, and retreat from this, this absolutely required commandment of preparation that we are given. Point number two. With the good news brought by the Lord Jesus come warnings also. With the good news brought by the Lord Jesus come warnings also. This idea made me think, took me back to the time when I was a police officer and I was a sergeant on the SWAT team. And we had what were called standing orders. Orders or rules that governed our everyday activity, our daily routines, our rules and regulations, our policies and procedures. Then we had warning orders very much like in the military. If you served in the military, especially if you were in a combat unit, you would have received warning orders. Those are specific orders issued when, when we're about to go on a mission. It tells us what we are going to be doing and why we're doing it, who's assigned to what task, etc. With the warning orders, though, they did not abolish the standing orders. The standing orders remain in effect. So knowing the context of what is happening and what Jesus' statement is helps us to understand the level of imperativeness that we can assign to what he is teaching here. Why is he teaching it is directly related to when he is teaching it. This is right at the very end. So this is like serious business time. The Lord is sitting down with his faithful inner band and one traitor and telling them, listen, and listen good. This is what's going to happen. This is what you must do. So it's, and then I use the standing orders because that doesn't mean that anything else the Lord said was not important. These are all important. It's just that this, the warning order is like, hey, you're about to go into action. And this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. But you're well ready because you have standing orders. The standing orders have prepared you for the warning order. So Christian, what the Lord is saying here, you are about to go into action. And as we know, brothers and sisters, we are in action because the Lord has departed, the Holy Spirit has come upon the church, and we await his return. This is a time of action for us. And there's... To get to my point, point number two that I made is, is Jesus gives a clear warning in this parable. And we shouldn't miss this. Many of his parables contain a warning in their message. And here the warning is about the irreversible judgment that awaits those who have masqueraded as true people of God. And in our current age, sadly, it troubles some 
that universal love for all is not the final word in, in this parable. And people such as that, I would say, depend on their own definition, their own calculations of love. And like the five foolish virgins, they do not take the holy God seriously. Like Psalms and Proverbs tell us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That being true, then those who lack a holy reverence for God demonstrate the height of folly. By definition, that means they are the foolish. So Jesus' warnings have been much ignored and even rejected in our age. And one reason for that, we know, is the exclusivity of the gospel. Where the gospel separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff which seems unfair to those who demand equality of outcome for all. But that's not how the Lord God works. If one believes in particular atonement and fallen man's radical inability to seek out his own salvation as we believe and confess to be the biblical truth, the true and proper teaching of the Bible, then one might ask, What's the point in Christ's warnings? Why is he giving these? For the elect will be saved and the reprobate will be lost. So why belabor the point? There's nothing that can be done. So what is the point? I'll tell you. Because the Lord God is gracious and merciful. He warns all of the consequences of rejecting the salvation found only in Jesus Christ. All men and women all people of a thinking age, a thinking ability, are to hear this, are to know this. And all who hear the gospel then are to hear the warnings of not heeding the gospel, which too often happens in our day and age. Also, and consider this, please, we dare not to second guess the manner by which God the Spirit reaches the lost sheep of the flock given to God the Son by God the Father. If this is the manner in which the triune God wants to reach the lost, that they seem to be to us the foolish virgins in the visible church, that is how the Lord God has decreed he will reach them. And praise God for that. That, that means, beloved, that if we enter the church thinking we're saved, but actually are not because we're just carried in by emotionalism, we're carried in by, um, by our family, we're carried in because, oh, there's a pretty girl that goes there and, and you know, I would like to meet her so I'll go to church and, and pretend to be a Christian. Praise the Lord that, that he reaches those people that are here under false pretenses. We should not, absolutely should not second guess the salvation that the Lord brings and how he brings it to people. There's this book, a history book about the Great Awakening, which took place before we were a country, when we were just colonies, in 1740 to about 1742. And the bright shining lights of the Great Awakening were Jonathan Edwards of Massachusetts and Connecticut, and George Whitfield of Britain, England, who came here and was an itinerant preacher and 
established an orphanage in Georgia. These men were, and others like them in the Great Awakening, which was just a tremendous work of the Holy Spirit, were criticized quite heavily. And in this history of the, of the Great Awakening, written by Joseph Tracy, who wrote about a century or, or more after the Great Awakening. So he's looking at it from a perspective where he's not right in the middle of it. So he's, he can be pretty objective. And he's not, you know, it's not a, what we would call a hagography. It's not a story about, you know, saints that, that have never done any wrong. He points out the flaws and it's very interesting. And one of the things that um, is, is fairly well known, if, if anyone's familiar with the Great Awakening, is there was much criticism of some of Jonathan Edwards' sermons. Now, Jonathan Edwards was one of the, one of the great minds of the early days of, of, the, of North America, a, a fantastic theologian, a wonderful pastor with a warm, loving pastor's heart. But he loved his flock, he loved people enough to preach about things that made people uncomfortable. Um, the, a few examples of his sermons. He wrote a sermon on, and preached a sermon on the punishment of the wicked. Then one on the eternity of hell's torments. And then the really well-known one that most have heard of, perhaps, is sinners in the hands of an angry God. Didn't go over well with a lot of people. It wasn't a f These are not feel-good sermons, but they had a tremendous impact at this time. And I think that the Lord led him to preach these at a time when it would be effective, a time when everybody basically went to church, and many that a pastor would face in his congregation were lost. And he knew it, and many of them knew it, but they had to be there. That was the thing that they had to do. So... It's been said, Tracy says, that preaching hell cannot frighten men into religion. And then Tracy goes on to say, and I'm quoting him here, he says, this is very true. But it may frighten them into serious thought and cause them to give their attention to the seriousness of their soul's predicament, which is wandering in the darkness and proud self-reliance until lightning flashes of God's warning revealed in Scripture illuminate before them the horrible chasm filled with bones and worm-eaten corpses into which they are about to fall for all eternity. Till then, all that they hear about the mercy of God only gives them courage to neglect him. That's the end of the, my quote from Tracy. I would add to what Tracy has to say in regards to this that no Christian flees into the kingdom of heaven because Satan, the devouring lion, has chased him or her there. But, again echoing Tracy, the realization that there is a beast whose heart desire is to rip and tear you to pieces and that you are alone and at the mercy of this beast to be played with until it consumes you may be what awakens the sinner to the gospel and the need for it. So back to our parable. The Lord points out in verses 8 and, verses, and verse 9 
that the foolish virgins, virgins have no oil and demand that the wise virgins give them their oil. But they re refuse, being told to go out and buy it for themselves. So what is this oil? It's a good question. Does it represent something specific? Okay, well, let's think about that. See if we can figure out what it's talking about. Um, the, the, the things that might come to mind, I would say there's a difficulty with the things that may come to mind because what, what may pop into our mind, like um, grace, faith, you know, those sort of things, those aren't things that can be purchased. No one can buy that, what, that which is required for salvation. And yet, the wise virgins are telling the foolish virgins to go buy it. So in, a, in an allegory, we don't always have these one-to-one, -one very clear parallels. We have to understand how an allegory works. It's, it's an idea. We're being told of an idea. Verses 3 and 4 earlier in the parable kind of help sort this out. And these say, For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So the foolish virgins never had any oil for their lamps. The wise virgins had the oil they needed when they took their lamps. What's the difference here? Both had the outward appearance of being ready to meet the bridegroom. They all had those sticks with cloths wrapped on the end, right? The torches. Everyone could see that. Each virgin could see that the other had the torch that was needed. But as we've been told, the foolish had no oil in their jars. This was not visible to anyone else. Right? You're carrying a jar. I don't know what's in it. I don't know it's, if it's full or it's empty necessarily. They were lacking, the foolish were lacking the necessary thing for their lamps. And no one could see this. But these foolish virgins knew that their jars were empty. They were without oil. Because when the sudden cry at midnight was heard, here is the bridegroom, they panicked. They lit their torches, but they quickly went out. That's why the, the idea of the torch is important, because they were able to light it for a bit. But the torch needed to be, before it was lit, to continue burning. It needed to be dipped in a jar of oil, then lit. Then it would burn for a long time. So their visible sign of being a virgin in the visible church was something of their own efforts. They did not have what would enable them to persevere. They are those who produce light for a very short period of time, the light of their own making. They do not have the oil provided to them by God, and their light cannot be maintained. It goes out. This brings us to my third point. The identity of the foolish virgins is not apparent until the bridegroom suddenly appears. The identity of the foolish virgins is not apparent until the bridegroom suddenly appears. 
Up to that very moment, the foolish virgins blend right in with the wise virgins. Like I said, they knew they were unprepared, the foolish ones, but they did nothing. They were satisfied in playing a charade, pretending to be ready for the bridegroom and the procession to the marriage supper. But by their play acting, consider this, they were dishonoring the bridegroom. They disobeyed their duty to be ready and to keep watch. And in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, it teaches us the way of the wise and warns against the way of the fool. We're going to look at that in depth this evening. Do not interpret this parable, though, as a violation of the golden rule on the part of the, of the wise virgins, the fact that they won't give their oil to the foolish virgins. Spiritual readiness is not something that can be transferred from one person to another, and that's what this oil, part of what it symbolizes. You simply cannot give the oil to another. It is the Lord God and only the Lord God who can give it. A major theme here then is individual responsibility for our spiritual condition. The faith of our fathers and mothers does not rub off on us in a way that, that brings us salvation. It, it can and does, thank the Lord, rub off of, on us in, a, in the way we live our life and perhaps even in our approach to the things of God in a respectful manner, in a way of understanding that this is important. I saw how it was important to my mother and father, but it must be sought and investigated by us ourselves. So this, this parable, I think, and the fact that half of these virgins were unprepared to meet the bridegroom when he came could very well have been a shock to the hearers, the, the, the disciples, and certainly unsettling and, and puzzling. The virgins would dip their torches into jars of oil before lighting them. So this, a torch without a jar of oil was as useless as a modern flashlight without a battery. doesn't matter how, you know, how nice, how, how advanced this flashlight is. If it has no power source, it's not going to work. Same with the torch without oil. So when we look at this parable, we can see that the five foolish virgins are identified by their self-absorption. In doing whatever they do, frittering away each day in foolish pursuits, they ignore what is most important. What is most important in their role? To be ready for the bridegroom. To watch, be prepared. And the self-centeredness that they have is clearly seen when they demand the oil from the wise virgins. They want to take their oil so they can get into the marriage feast with someone else's oil. And then, talk about pride and arrogance, they demand the master of the house open his locked door to them. Let us in, open up. Their pride and sense of self-importance really knows no bounds. These are the traits of the foolish. My last point, point number four. The Lord God is not deceived. 
He knows who is foolish and who is wise. The Lord God is not deceived. He knows who is foolish and he knows who is wise. The master of the house, as we're told in the parable, closed and locked the door after the wise virgins entered. He knew when it was time to close and lock that door. He didn't wait around for the foolish virgins. He was not standing there looking at his watch like, I've waited as long as I can, I'm closing the door. No, he knew when to close the door. Five wise ones are in, slam, the door's closed, click, it's locked. He did not tarry to allow those foolish virgins time to buy the oil and fill their jars. It was too late for them to go out and become spiritually prepared because the bridegroom had come. The door of mercy is how we should see the door to the master's house. The door of mercy has been opened humanly for a very long time that it will be closed by the Lord God according to his schedule. He will close it when he has decreed that door will be closed. And remember what the Lord Jesus warned time and time again in all of it discourse. No one knows the day or the hour. That needs to sink in. It's not like, well, things are building to a crescendo. Look what Putin just did. Look what Biden just did. You know, I just read this on the internet. It's, it's time. And then that time passes. Like, oh, wrong again. Oh, well. And then you just decide, I, 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 can't be, I can't be hyped up all the time. I'm not, you know, I, 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 it's, it's not going to happen. We, we can't be like that. There's no warning that the, God, that the Lord God gives in the Bible for which there's no recourse. For every pronouncement of judgment, there's a corresponding offer of mercy. As Paul wrote to the Philippians in, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does Paul mean here when he tells us to work out our own um, salvation but it is God who works in us, it's, we know we can't. We don't work towards our salvation. We cannot possibly do so, but we are not unaware of the Lord's salvation working in us. When when we are transformed, when we are saved, then the process of sanctification starts to take place. And this is what Paul is talking about. We need to examine our hearts, our motives, and our inner drives. And if you if you do not detect this process of sanctification then, friend, take, take heed that you are not amongst the foolish virgins. Yes, the old man, our sin nature is always trying to rise up. We all experience that, and we will experience it till the Lord returns or we go to glory. But what Paul is telling us to do, working, out our own sanctif- working on our sanctification, is, is meditating on Scripture It's examining ourselves. This is our proper response to the salvation God brings about in us. And this is the means by which the Holy Spirit works in our sanctification. He works, in in essence, like hand in hand with us. Think of your desires and your wants and the things that you're interested in now compared to when you were a sinner. They certainly should be different. 
You couldn't imagine spending time part once upon a time reading the Bible. You couldn't imagine once upon a time maybe reading a, a book of theology. And yet now you hunger after God's word. That's sanctification, beloved. But, but there's a warning in this. You may consider yourself a biblical expert, a, a theological wonderkind, let, let's say, but your knowledge of doctrine, dogma, creeds, and catechism, catechisms if they do not at times cause you to beat your chest and avert your eyes from heaven, crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, then your knowledge is wasted. That knowledge should point you to something. It should point you to the, the great act of love that God has done in your life. And if all your knowledge is just knowledge, then you're a dead man pontificating from the grave and people will say you stink. We must not be a stench in the nostrils of those that we are trying to reach for the Lord God. But on the other hand, despising ourselves is also wicked. That, that's just a form of self-pity and, and self-absorption. Think of God's purpose in creating man. It was to have a mortal creature in this material world that would carry, that would bear his image and likeness, that is a high, high honor that the Lord bestowed upon us when he created us. And it's, a, and it's an act of great love. It's not an act of revulsion. It's our sin which brings revulsion, of course. So human striving to be a better saint or great martyr, that, that's a perilous thing brothers and sisters. That's, that's the way that Satan can tempt within the church, where he can draw us to a point where we're interested in ourselves and not on the Lord, not on his cross. So John gives us a different perspective of this time approaching the Last Supper. Jesus says this after his time of teaching at the Last Supper, and before his pronouncement of the coming betrayal by one of the inner band. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 17, we hear Christ's words, and he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Christ does not put happiness upon the knowing. The happiness, the blessedness he places upon the doing of those things. And as Luke wrote in chapter 6, verse 46, very important. It's the same idea that we see in this parable. The Lord says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? If he is your Lord, you will do what he says. You will not ignore what he commands us. So if knowledge alone saves you, then all, all who have knowledge will be saved. If knowledge were salvific, then Judas Iscariot would be saved. If knowledge was salvific, then Satan, even Satan would be saved because that ancient dragon knows more theology than all of us put together. Yet his destiny is the lake of fire. As a Puritan, wrapping up here, as the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said, a sermon is never rightly heard until it is practiced. 
and hell is full of learned heads. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching. Father, it's a hard teaching. It's hard to grasp. Father, you know it was hard for me to preach. Father, but we, but we know that you love us enough to give us warnings. You, the Son, and the Holy Spirit warn us of these things, that it would not be loving if you did not warn us. And then we also, in love for one another, must preach these warnings also. I pray that all of us be led into the path of righteousness that you have prepared for us, that we know what our duty is, that we be prepared, that we watch at all times, that we not be dissuaded one way or the other that the Lord's returning immediately or the Lord's not going to be returning, that we be ready, Lord, that we hear the warning order, but we not ignore our standing orders. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.